Hello friends, welcome to the ATC Double Cut. Today we're going to talk about turfgrass nutrition and soil testing and that kind of stuff. I have a very special guest today. It is Dr. Beth Gerdahl, who is, many of you will know her as the turfgrass soil fertility professor from Auburn University. But Beth, I've put up your new job title on the screen. This is a long one. Um, welcome to the show. And uh, can you tell us a little bit about your current position? <laughs> so I retired last June and went to work for Kansas State University, but I'm working remotely. So I basically moved to my garage at Auburn and it's uh, a position in international agriculture, working with research extension and teaching programs in Haiti and as well as some other uh, countries that will likely come online. Will it have any connection to turf grass a little bit because some of the universities do want to work on turf grass certificates because they recognize the value of Haitian, trained Haitians that can move into that enterprise. Um, but a lot of it's just uh, curriculum development and trying to create a, a better place for ag in Haiti. Yeah, well, there's a lot of opportunities to share your expertise and uh, do, yeah, many much of the expertise that American agriculture has um, to spread that around the world. I know you did a sabbatical in Mauritius. Um, I did, yeah. Which, which was awesome. That that is an a a country in the South uh, Indian Ocean in the Southern Hemisphere. And maybe we'll talk a, a little bit about that. Were, were you doing anything with turf grass there? Yeah, I was. I talked. I taught turf grass management there and then worked with the courses that were there. And I know you visited a lot of those. Well, I say a lot, what other, maybe six on the Island. So for those that are listening, it's a, um, it's a, it's a fairly, it, it used to, it's entire economy used to be sugarcane. Now it's largely tourism with all inclusive resorts that ring what is just an absolutely spectacular Island. So you basically, go to Madagascar and you just keep going East and you will run smack into Mauritius. Yeah. It's, it's, it's at similar latitudes below the equator to where Hawaii is North of the equator. And yeah. I found a lot of similarities between the types of grasses that grow well. So you've got seashore paspalum grows pretty well there. Um, yep. Bermuda grass grows pretty well. St. Augustine grass grows pretty well. Um, and those are the three, um, the courses, where like the old course, the Gymkhana Club was almost all seashore past Palin, for example, and it dated to the twenties. Yeah, I have not been to that one. I, I don't. It's think in the I've... central part. It, it's not one of the resort courses. So, so it that was all seashore past Palin, but it's in the center of the island. It's yeah, away from the yeah. ocean. Yeah, yeah. It's, mm -hmm. it's it's cool. It's a beautiful place, and I really want to go back. And uh, my friend Storm Lupier, uh, mm -hmm. if if you're listening to this. Uh, hello. <laughs> I, I, I don't even know if Storm is there anymore. Well, last time I was there, Storm was there, and I don't know. Um, well, COVID really hit the island. So, Storm, if you're here, so let us know where you are. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, as far as I know, he might be. Yeah, he might be there. He's uh, okay. He, yeah. He's, we overlapped because he was a superintendent of a course in Alabama long ago. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. That's, yeah. He's, he's worked all over the place. I, mm -hmm. I uh, mm -hmm. recently. He was in the Philippines and I got a chance to do some work with him there. So that was cool. Um, yeah. So, oh, one more thing about Mauritius. Uh, fine bladed zoysia is sometimes called mascarine grass. Mm -hmm. And I think those once were called the mascarine islands. Is is that? I don't know. I, that has never come to mind. It's an odd island in its settlement because the Portuguese were the first to go there, but they never showed any inclination to actually settle it. And uh, then the English and I believe the French decided to, to have a spat over it. And it was actually under English rule for a long, long time until it became its own entity. I want to say in the early 70s. And so it's a cool place. Yeah, I worked there and taught the kids were with me, which was really fun. We had a good time. They went to school there. In English or in French? In English. They learned no French. It was terrible. <laughs> cool. Well, let's jump in to okay. the topic that I want to discuss about discuss, which uh I could talk about Mauritius for a long time because Mauritius is uh is is fun, but uh let's talk about a blog post that I 
did recently, and it's called Best Judgment of the Agronomist. And that's actually a quote from one of these research papers. And what I did, this is a four-minute read. I'll put a direct link to it on the in the show notes so you can check it out. Um, basically, it's a look at the past 50 years of quotes about soil testing and soil test interpretation. And I started with a quote from Dr. Beard's book, uh, Turfgrass Science and Culture in 1973. And I'll just read this quote and I'm and then we'll discuss it. And then I'm going to argue that not much has changed in the past 50 years. So that book was published uh, maybe in 1972, but it's got a copyright in 1973. So I think that mm -hmm. is um, 50 years ago. And on page 442, he wrote, Few detailed correlation studies have been conducted concerning turfgrass responses to fertilization with various levels of plant nutrients on soils with various inherent fertility levels. Many soil test recommendations for turf grasses are based on soil test correlation studies conducted with field crops such as corn and certain pasture grasses. Utilizing these correlations as a base, modifications have arbitrarily been made in applying them to turf grass conditions. It is unfortunate that adequate correlation studies have not been conducted for turfs. Hopefully this problem will be corrected in the future. So that was from 1973. And um, we'll go on through that blog post and I'm not going to read every single one of the quotes, but there's been a lot of research and review papers and textbooks and so on that essentially restate um, that. And uh, yeah, I mean, I guess that would have been accurate in 1973. And it, it unfortunately, it hits a little bit too close to home that 50 years later that uh, this problem hasn't quite been corrected in the future for TERFs. Mm -hmm. Nope, I agree, I'm afraid. And, and you know, the question is, because I kind of taught on this at GIS show last week and people are like, well, why? And I'm like, well, it's money. I mean, nobody, nobody cares to spend the money to get good calibrations or updated calibrations. Who's going to pay for that? Okay. That, that is a very good point. And maybe, could you explain when we talk about what a calibration is, uh, mm -hmm. how, what's, what's, what is it that's lacking? Like what is a calibration? How would you do it? Um, and, and then we can talk about why it wouldn't be practical to do it because it yeah. would just be too expensive. So, so, you know, and the, the, the example I always give that, that still works well is like, um, have you ever owned horses? Do you, do you know anything about horses? I mean, I'm just asking you that question. Uh, my sister owned a horse. So um, like, if I say to you, what size was your sister's horse? Do you know the answer to that? Mm, I, I don't remember, but it was some uh, 14 hands or, or, See, so or you 16 kind of, hands or something. Right. You're kind of calibrated, but the difference between 14 and 16 hands is enormous. Like 14 is almost a pony and 16 is a pretty big thoroughbred, right? So if you're horse sized, you're calibrated. And if somebody came up to me and said, I, I own a 23 hand horse, I'd be like, uh, really? Cause that's a good That's a big, big horse. Mm -hmm. And so then the next one we use examples of, we're all calibrated for stint meter readings, right? We know when somebody says, it's stint 13. We know what that means. We instantly get a vision in our head of speed. And so now there's all these new little ball drop things and, and like the new, what is that called? The G3 ball that's going to roll on the greens. And the first thing I asked was, well, I'd love to see calibration data. And so that's how we are with soils because I can, you know, we're calibrated enough that if someone says to me, my extractable soil phosphorus was 400 and I don't care what the extract is in the, <laughs> within the ones that we use, right. From Olson yeah. to Malik gray. If they say to me it was 400, I can go, Holy crap. You don't need to put phosphorus on for the rest of your career. I mean, that's high. But if they say to me it was 18, I'm not quite sure what to do with that number. I'm probably going to say, put a little extra on for safety but I can't tell you you're going to see a response to applying that phosphorus because like the work that Doug Soldat does with Glenn O'Bear, it looks like you need to go down to like 
geez, six or seven. You know, and when I say these numbers, I'm usually meaning milligrams per kilogram of extractable nutrient, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's what I mean when I say calibration. And we would have to have that over a range of soil types, over a variety of extractants. And I would argue we'd have to have those four different crops, right? Because the extractant for paspalum may not be anywhere the same as the extractant for uh, velvet bentgrass. Okay. And so how would we go about doing uh, <laughs> those? If So we've got, like, we've got different grasses used all uh -huh. over the world. They're growing in different climates. Right. And, 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 really, and we have different soil types also. Right. So how, it, how would it, we do this kind of study? You'd have to do it at lots of different places and it becomes ex extremely problematic, which is why most every state has a soil testing lab and where are they getting their calibration data from? They're getting their calibration data from all the work that was done in the 1950s and 1960s, exactly like Jim Beard says, on corn and forage Bermuda and whatever they can cobble together. And um, because there's just been no resources invested in fixing any of this, we're just merely trundling along with it. And we keep, I mean, good Lord, it wasn't, until I came to Auburn in like 95 and it took me 10 years of stringent arguing. And like, I actually had to go out and kill centipede grass to show them that we needed a Lyme recommendation for centipede grass. You know, we didn't have one. If, it, no matter how low your soil test pH was, there wouldn't be a recommendation for Lyme because there was this weird idea, idea that centipede didn't need it. And that's the same way with some of our calibration. And so that's the part where you and I agree on MLSN that that your lower recommendations agronomically, I have no problem with any of them. Because if a superintendent were to call me with like Florida or Alabama recommendations, the first thing I'm going to tell them for most of their nutrients is you can probably cut that in half. You don't need what it's saying. Okay. Um, that we're, we're, talking about so many things uh this is such a big topic because fertilization is so important because you talked about killing grass by not making a lime recommendation yeah, so i yeah. mean like worst case scenario yeah. like like worst case scenario is we end up with grass quality that is not as good as we want it to be mm -hmm. and that's why i tend to be a little bit uh conservative and yeah. suggest that, that, um, like I want to make a fertilizer recommendation if it's necessary. And for professionally managed turf, I'd rather err a little bit on the side of safety. And that's, I agree. I agree. So like, like, I mean, the MLSN for potassium is what? 21, 20, it's I think for potassium on May uh -huh. 3, it's 37. Right. Okay. Now. See, and I'm, I'm okay with that. Um, and you look again at the body of research and then the stuff that's been coming out with Doug Soldat again. And I know you did a session with him on this for the pink snow mold, right? And mm -hmm. he shows that every additional increment of potassium fertilizer applied increased pink snow mold. So you could argue if pink snow mold is an issue for you, you could drive your soil test, soil test K down low. How low? Well, seven, eight. But if I saw that on a soil test report, I'd be like, no, I want to see it between 30. And then I'll go above your MLSN if they have POA and they want to protect the POA because the workout of Rutgers says, well, you need to keep it around 50. And again, this is all milligrams per kilogram. And that's the same as a part per million for those of you keeping track. So if your soil test reports are in parts per million, that's the same. And um, so, you know, that's a pretty wide range, isn't it? I just said from 30 to 50, but that's as good as our calibration is right now. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I want to talk a little bit about something that people often misunderstand about MLSN. And okay. uh, when, when I tell this to you, uh, you will probably realize what I'm, I'm talking about. So mm -hmm. we're talking about static numbers, but grass is alive. Um, so, uh, grass extracts nutrients from the soil 
So yeah. yeah. So when the grass is at 45 parts per million or milligrams per kilogram potassium today, if it's actively growing, then we can expect that it might be at 44 parts per million at some time in the future, which mm -hmm. at the rate that the grass uses nutrients uh, for a warm season grass at the rate that they would grow midsummer, we might expect to deplete the soil by about uh, five parts per million per month or something like that. Um, five so PPM. five pounds per acre per month. Yeah, mm -hmm. I'm okay with that because um, because one of the, I, I, I did a talk about a year and a half ago on how much nutrients do, does a growing turf grass crop remove? And what I discovered was that it was incredibly hard to get data on that, that if you start wandering in the research literature, because, you know, what do you have to have to calculate that? Well, you've got to have percent that was in the plant tissue, but then you have to have the yield of the clippings, right? And you have to multiply them to get, oh yeah, so the turf removed two grams of nitrogen per thousand square feet per every harvest or whatever, right? Excuse me. And if you look in research papers, and particularly in older stuff, they don't tell you that. You've got percent, mm -hmm. but you don't have you don't have clipping weight. And you can't you can't wrestle the numbers you need. So I did it with everything I could find. And it was really interesting how I think it was like two pounds of K2O per thousand square feet per year on a warm season, you know, and then you had to go, okay, well, how long are you going to really be mowing this? And okay, let's adjust for the number of months. And it was a lot of differences. Yeah. So the way that I address this problem is we never really know because we're never going to collect all of our harvest and, and, right. and we're never going to, and then you've got some loss by leaching and stuff. But if we're just looking right. at what the harvest is, what we what I think we can do for the harvest is is make a simple estimate as a uh, a maximum estimate because again I mentioned earlier that I prefer to be conservative so I'd rather mm -hmm. estimate for healthy grass what's the maximum amount that it would use and the maximum mm -hmm. amount that it's going to use must be limited by the nitrogen that the grass could potentially take up so the yeah. nitrogen that the grass could take up is going to be a combination of the nitrogen that is mineralized the nitrogen that comes from the irrigation water and the nitrogen that's supplied by fertilizer so mm -hmm. I, I think in in most parts of the world we can consider the nitrogen that comes through rainfall to be negligible in comparison oh, yeah. it's, to um, these other amounts yeah, it's 10 pounds of N per acre per year. That's a very good rule of thumb. Um, I had a colleague that collected all the rainfall for three years down in Fairhope, Alabama, which is the most lightning strike activity in the United States, very high. And um, because they never could get a response to wheat trials down, they ran all these wheat trials and they could never get a nitrogen response. And people kept saying, oh, it's in the air, you're fixing it, you're fixing it with lightning activity. And so Wes was like, okay, I'm just going to collect it all. And it was 10 pounds per acre per year. Yeah, it's it's not as much as people think. I have a couple mm -hmm. blog posts about that. Yeah, um, I remember and, that. Yeah. And, and, and the United States has an excellent, um, the, the United States has some reporting on this, uh, some mm -hmm. sensors around the country. And uh, right. in the UK, it's, there also is. So if you're downwind from a, a hog uh, feedlot or something, mm, you, yeah, it, even it the, spikes. Yeah, but even so, it, it's not, it doesn't compare not. with fertilizer or mineralization. Right. And the, I'll get the question in the golf industry because people will say, the greens are real fuzzy. The ball roll's not good. Do you think I'm getting a spike from atmospheric N? And I'm like, nope. I mean, I mean, I know nitrogen's not related at all to soil testing because we don't have a calibrated test for soil nitrogen, but which makes it such an intriguing nutrient because as fairways get older, and I always tell people, if you've got 25 and 30 year old fairways or greens, you're you're mineralizing potentially, you know, the work out of North Carolina. Now that's warm season, um, you know, 30 pounds of N per acre per year. That's not an insignificant amount of nitrogen. It, no, it it once you get a bit of organic matter in the soil, it becomes um, ample amounts yes. during during the times of the year when when you can have mineralization so yeah. so anyway the way that i do the maximum estimate is 
we, we can sum together all those supplies of N. Uh, so if mm -hmm. you're irrigating with reclaimed water, you can, you'll be testing that. You'll know how much nitrogen is in your mm -hmm. water. You know how much water you apply. So you can get all these sources of N, fertilizer N, um, mm -hmm. irrigation water N, and mineralized N. You can estimate that. So now you've got your total N that's being supplied. And we know that we're growing healthy turf grass because we expect healthy turf grass is going to have a certain amount of N in it. And so then we can just say, and, we, and so we know what the dry weight is. So once right. you know what that N is, and we know that uptake is not 100% efficient. So right. assuming that uptake was 100% efficient, that is our upper bound on how much nitrogen the grass could use. And mm -hmm. then that's the upper bound on on what the clipping yield would be, which is then an mm -hmm. upper bound on what our harvest is of phosphorus, potassium, calcium, magnesium, sulfur, yeah. and all the other elements. Yeah. And if you really want to be on that lower end, you know, people say to me, well, how efficient is turf grass at taking up nitrogen? 50%. I mean, that number has worked us well for years. And we've tried, we use slow release sources, we use foliar. Yeah, you can nudge it up to 60 to 70 with some of those techniques, but 50% holds us pretty well for a rough seat of the pants and NUE, nitrogen utilization efficiency. And that kind of sucks, really. It's not gotten better in 70 years of crop production. Um, there's a lot of reasons why not, but um, it works pretty well. Yeah. So, so that, that is a good number that, that I often use and, and it works well. People will be familiar with clipping volume. And uh, so, for a lot of golf courses, I recommend um, taking your annual clipping volume, the total, so you know what your total above ground clipping harvest was. And if mm -hmm. you if you work backwards, so let's say you've applied two pounds of nitrogen per thousand square feet, which would be a hundred kilograms of nitrogen per hectare, or mm -hmm. um, ten grams of nitrogen per square meter. If mm -hmm. you look at how much clipping volume that produces and in if you're growing in a sand root zone with relatively low organic matter it will mm -hmm. often produce the quantity of clippings that would uh indicate that you have about 50 percent or 60 percent uptake efficiency so yeah. you'll get I'm, I'm, so yeah and and so um that's just kind of the way it works so you're sort of like oh it looks like we've harvested in the clippings about half of what we applied. So it's something yeah. like that. So, and there's a, there's a gorgeous body of work. It actually was Eric Miltner's uh, PhD thesis and uh, published it like in 1996. And it's still, because he actually looked at all the facets that where nitrogen can go. So he used labeled nitrogen and put it on Kentucky bluegrass and then traced it in the entire system. And what was fascinating was, was in the first month, most of it just got immobilized, right? In the organic matter. And then over the two years of the study, you're dead on. 55% of the nitrogen was taken away in the verdure. It eventually was harvested over that two years. But it's a really rapid phenomenon that it goes into the organic system and then it gets mineralized back out. And so it's it's kind of like I always say, it's you get your paycheck and you're, you'd like to be able to put a big chunk of it into your savings account because you know you're going to just draw out of that when you need it as time goes on. And I'm going to go back to MLSN and the, mm -hmm. the, I mentioned uh, a few minutes ago about the, um, what did I say? A common misunderstanding about it and yes. how we were just, we were talking about static numbers, but now we've been talking about n what happens with nitrogen and how nitrogen is related to growth and, and nutrient harvest. I use MLSN not to compare to the number. I use it to make a fertilizer recommendation. Okay. And to make a mm -hmm. fertilizer recommendation, I have to have a time component because I need to know if I'm making a fertilizer recommendation for one week or one month or one year. Mm -hmm. Okay. And okay. so, so I'm looking forward at how much nutrient use is expected. And, and you know that I'm recommending that people stay at or above the MLSN guideline. And mm -hmm. so the, if we test at 50, uh, it often is still going to get a, a, a potassium recommendation where let's use potassium because it's easy. Um, right. So if we're in definitely, if, if I'm in Alabama growing any kind of grass, there's enough uptake that we definitely in a year are going to 
uh, drop below 37 parts per million potassium if we don't add any, if we start at 50. So that's that's where I see a lot of people. Yeah, but, but this was your PhD work. It depends on the clay mineral too. I mean, you know, I've got a lot of elytic materials and kaolinites that are going to continue to supply potassium. Yes, and so you can, <laughs> I, I, and I've, I've written on my blog about this also, and I've talked with Doug about it, where I would suggest that in year one, assuming we don't really know how the soil test changes, I'm going mm -hmm. to make the recommendation based on assuming that the, the non-exchangeable or mineral forms of potassium in the soil will supply nothing. But then we can see how the soil test changes over time. And mm -hmm. so if it changes less than we would have expected based mm -hmm. on the amount of potassium that was applied, then we can infer that perhaps the soil was supplying something. And then in year two and in year three yeah. and onwards, we can then adjust our recommendation down because we see. Yeah. So, so, so you see, I'm, I'm making the assumption that, that we're going to drop, let's say 20 parts per million in one year, but if we, right. If, and, and yeah. And the other, the other quibble I'll have is that, you know, MLSN does kind of, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but it, it sort of amortizes over all soil test extractants, right? So you're not too picky as if it's Malik 1, Malik 3, Bray, Olson, or anything, right? No, I'm, Malik 3 is, is only, uh, sorry, I mean, MLSN is only done with Malik 3 data. Although for, uh, phos for phosphorus, we, we also calculated it for Bray 2 and for Olson. Um, but okay. uh, I've got a cheat sheet in which, <laughs> in which uh, an, a two-page MLSN cheat sheet, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Yeah, that's the one the PACE guys have, right? Uh, as well, we can get to through their site. You could, you it's could got like get... a great little table right in the center that's kind of red and pink. Well, that, yeah, so that one, I'll, I'll put up the Pace Turf website, which is a great source for uh, turfgrass information, paceturf.org. Um, th so that is not the cheat sheet. That is kind of the, the standard guidelines document. But there is an MLSM page at Pace Turf, and that has a link to, to this cheat sheet that I'm referring to. And there's also um, a MLSM page at the Asian Turfgrass site, which has a link uh, to this cheat sheet. And, and in that cheat sheet, there's a, a section about what if I've used an extractant that's not made of three. Okay. And of course, it's, it's pretty easy for the non-acid cations, calcium, magnesium, potassium, to make a conversion if you've used ammonium acetate. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I put some suggestions about how you can handle the, the case in which you have a different uh, extraction method. Wonderful. But, yeah. but basically, because, uh, we're using Malik 3. Yeah, because we fight it even like Alabama versus Florida. One is Malik 1, one is Malik 3. And it's a really common question. And it's kind of a one-to-one -one relationship. And and Bray 1 versus Bray 2. And um, Now, one of the things I discovered when I taught my short course I hadn't seen, and boy, it kind of gives me a heart attack a little bit, is superintendents were bringing their soil test reports in and we were scanning them and talking about them. And sometimes it would just say available P or available K. It would say available. And I'm looking at the numbers and the numbers were invariably really low. Mm -hmm. And I told them I was pretty sure they were saturated paste extracts because then above it, it would say total P or total K. And of course the word total to you that's and I wrong. Yeah, that's wrong. is wrong. Thank you. It's <laughs> so wrong. And yeah. I said, you're going to have to call your soil test lab and ask them this. And, and these were some pretty reputable places. I mean, I never really have problems with most of the people that run the soil test reports. And sometimes it wasn't the soil test lab. It was the consultant. And, and this using this, this word total is just, and I, this word available, I, I really think they were saturated paste extracts. Which... Yeah, that's it. So that, I've seen that a lot on uh, tests that are run by fertilizer companies. And it's quite understandable why <laughs> they, they do it this way. Because if you do a saturated paste, which is not a recommend, that is, 
saturated paste is mixing water with soil and it's very difficult to reproduce it because it depends on on the laboratory technician who's doing it how much mm -hmm. exact water they add but um, they add water to the soil until it forms they're stirring it they until it forms what they call a saturated paste which is uh it, it glistens and and water is not supposed to be uh able to escape from it unless you put vacuum suction on it so you you would be stirring it on a table and and it should just form a paste without water leaking across the countertop now uh i'm not sure that that's that they actually do it properly like that at the lab because even if you add just like one drop of extra water now it's going to leak off but you're supposed mm -hmm. to bring it up to the point where it is a saturated paste and then with vacuum suction you then extract it that's what you're doing for soil salinity, for assessing mm -hmm. soil salinity. And, pH. Mm -hmm. and yeah, you could do pH that way also, although it's it's more common in labs to just do a fixed volume. So they'll do a one-to-one mm -hmm. -one generally right. with, be, yeah. because it's faster and they don't have to do the specialized. Right. Um, but a lot of times if they're doing that one-to-one, -one, that your point is sound because that's what they're calling saturated paste. So they'll do a one-to-one -one soil to water or a one-to-one -one calcium chloride to soil, and they'll call that saturated paste and not do the attention to it like you just described. Ooh, well, yeah. So, yeah, you want to use the best labs possible and make sure you're using standard methods because otherwise you really can't make sense of the numbers. But right. uh, <laughs> anyway, if they want to well, call that a saturated that's a paste. Really, that's a really good point. Like back to MLSN, I love that your sulfur number, I think is seven or 10. Mm -hmm. What is it? Seven. Seven. Because that's, I'm writing them to remind myself, um, because that is really the kind of number that we're finding in all of our sulfur recommendations. And that's another great one because people just run Malik on sulfur. And, and this is actually, I get this question a lot from corn, cotton, and soybean growers. And um, because we're starting more and more to see responses to sulfur all over the, the parts of the United States that no longer have extensive air pollution. And, you know, 20 some years ago when I started this, we never made a sulfur recommendation. And now I go into cotton and corn and soybeans, um, like in the mid-Atlantic and in Iowa, they're starting to see a response. Now, is it huge? No, 10 pounds of sulfur per acre per year solves the problem. You know, it's like, but, but I like that you have that number of seven, but the extractant that the sulfur guys tend to like is either a calcium, is a calcium phosphate extract. And yet no soil test lab, one will, hair, I think it's hair. One of them in the Midwest will run it, but everybody else is just running Malik. Yeah, but there's, there's been a little bit of research that shows that Malik is okay for sulfur. Um, but, in fact, but I was talking like to Travis. Yeah, Travis Shaddix told me that he they're about to publish a sulfur paper, so I'm really excited to see that in turf. Yeah, and I think he's going to come up with a similar number to MLSN, which, which, which is what you find is that the MLSN numbers, even though it's not a traditional um, calibration in any way, the numbers just work and that's they why do. and and <laughs> and and they're like, reasonable and right. uh and so if you make the recommendations the way uh that i do assuming depletion of nutrients then you get a fertilizer recommendation that accounts not just that you're at 45 parts per million you're above mlsn but you'll get a fertilizer mm -hmm. recommendation to stay above mlsn and that's mm -hmm. where um I'll bring up my uh, my blog post again with all these quotes. Let's, and let's, let's phosphorus. 21, your phosphorus is 21? Phosphorus is 21. Okay. And, and magnesium is what? 47. See, and that's actually high because for us, my magnesium toggle point is 24. For, for Bermuda grass? For all crops. That's how bad our calibrations are. <laughs> Sulfur okay. is for all crops. Calcium, I do 250. I can't remember what yours was. Right now it's 331. But okay. the the reason why it's 331 is because it has a lot of PACE data that's from the American Southwest, which naturally, um, the way we, we did the analysis, we're just kind of looking at what's normal in the data that we were looking at. And the mm -hmm. data we were looking at, the initial data set has a lot of data from 
the American Southwest. If you look at the Global Soil Survey, it's like uh, 267. And yeah. when when we start dropping out some of the older PACE turf data and including more of the more recent ATC data, which are from all around the world, then mm -hmm. uh, the magnesium number is going to come down to something like what the potassium is now. Potassium is going to come down to 30. Phosphorus mm -hmm. is going to stay the same and calcium is going to be like 267 or 270 okay. or something like that. But, and, you know, I think, and, and please disagree with me if you do, but I, I'm basically going to assure the listeners that in 28 years, I have never seen a response to calcium on a turf grass sward that was unrelated to the need to fix pH. So in other words, if you adjust your soil pH, your soil test calcium is going to hold you in good stead. Yeah, and I haven't either, and I agree with you. But at the <coughs> same at the same time, um, let's look, for example, at some of my clients in Japan. Okay. Okay. And, and I'm gonna, so I'm gonna describe to you something very practical. They're okay. on, let's say they're on a, a sand based root zone with mm -hmm. about one percent organic matter. So it has mm -hmm. a low cation exchange capacity. Yep. And about two. Yep something like that and let's say that their soil potassium is about uh 250 or 300 so it's below mlsn and in Wait japan soil k is what sorry 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 i misspoke calcium <laughs> calcium we're, we're okay. calcium thank you thank you for catching me on that it's uh, 250 to 300 okay got no, it no cal yeah calcium not potassium calcium if, if right not if, potassium if okay if if your potassium is like that uh, <coughs> consider yourself lucky and you won't have to <laughs> apply potassium for a while. You don't need to worry about that. And so your calcium's like 250, 300. And the climate is something like Augusta, Georgia, where it mm -hmm. is quite hot in the summer. So you can expect, you know, your roots might be kind of dying. And mm -hmm. it also can rain a lot. So, um, you know, you figure there might be leaching and, and disease pressure and, and so on. And we also know that the grass doesn't have a lot of, it, it doesn't use a huge amount of calcium. It's just a so little what's bit. The P, what's the pH of that system? Uh, 6.5. Okay. So no Lyme recommendation. Okay. Yeah. In that case, I would advocate gypsum. I mean, some kind of calcium source. And so... So what I tell my clients when 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 I get that I'm like I think your calcium is okay, mm -hmm. but but honestly they're in the the bottom uh, they'll be in like the bottom seven percent of yeah. good performing turf grass soils, and and I tell them look during the periods of the most active grass growth it's really hot there it's bent grass it's really mm -hmm. hot their root system might be struggling. Mm -hmm. And I tell them, if you want to add calcium, go ahead. We're not, yeah. and it's, and it's not trying to change the soil whatsoever because the soil right. isn't going to hold it. All I'm telling them is if you want to apply calcium at the rate that would meet the plant requirements, which is, is tiny because right. calcium is used at about one eighth, the amount of nitrogen. So it's right. just during the periods so of, of active growth, if you're worried about it, I don't care. Yeah, if you apply that's it. that's Go kind ahead. of that, that's kind of what I would put into a um, no harm, no foul kind of thing. And you know, I used to say that about potassium, and then Doug did all that damn work with the snow mold, and I had to back off that. You know, but but yeah, to me, what source do you tell them to use for calcium? Um, I'm I'm indifferent. Okay, I, so I mean, I, in, in I, Japan, in Japan, they would often be applying some type of uh, liquid product. So okay. uh, it's, it's some hmm. type of soluble calcium. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm the same way with that. And in fact, I don't know if they, I mean, well, they wouldn't need much nitrogen then, but calcium nitrate could be another option as well. It, yeah, Expensive. it could. Whew. Yeah. But it's, it's tiny amounts and, and that's where, yeah. that's where, uh, but if they're above MLSN, I just kind of tell them, yeah, you don't need to apply. Well, mm -hmm. if they're above uh, by enough, but see with calcium, you don't have to be above by very much 
to uh, not have to apply any because the grass right. doesn't use it so much. But, but this but, is the fascinating part is because we're having this whole discussion about calcium and we're sort of seats of panting it like, okay, yeah. There's one paper that looked at calcium and that was Nick Christians. And I think he looked at calcium additions in calcareous soils, calcareous putting greens that were made from calcareous sand. That's it. I mean, there's no driver or impetus to have people look at these things, even though they're incredibly important. Yeah, it it's it's important, but there's a lot of things that we have yet to learn. And in the meantime, <laughs> I think MLSN works pretty good to make reasonable recommendations. Um, and and one thing I want to point out is that um, a lot of states are starting to kind of adopt this same idea, like a couple, some of the northeastern states that are, are faced with regulatory emphases on phosphorus, right, are, are also shoving those phosphorus recommendations sort of to the left on the slant curve. So instead of saying the critical soil test for P is 60, which is what it is in a lot of state recommendations. So if you're above 60, you're fine. You don't need to add any more phosphorus. If you're below, you're gonna have a phosphorus soil test recommendation. Well, your MLSN is, the critical point is 21, right? Mm -hmm. And so now states are starting to move back to what you have. Um, you're seeing states go to 30 and 40 as the new critical soil test. And I think I think that's important and I think that's needed. Yeah, it's, if we look at where some of the conventional guidelines are set at uh, from that very first uh, quote that I gave uh, mm -hmm. from Dr. Beard, it said it was right. ar arbitrary, that, that, that the guidelines have been arbitrarily adjusted. And there's another quote that I'll show here. Um, mm -hmm. This one is from... Uh, Bob's? Well, yeah. from, from the book, uh, yeah. 2001, Carol Waddington and Regan. That is a great, great book. It's one of my favorite texts. Well, it's it's a classic, and and when they're talking about uh, phosphorus and potassium, I'm not sure that everybody's aware of this, but it's right in the textbook on pages 160 to 164. Mm -hmm. I I. I put quotes together from two different pages, but I'll go ahead and read this one too. It says, unfortunately, very little research has been conducted on turf grasses to provide the necessary information required for precise interpretation. Thus, interpretation may be based on, res on research with forage or other crops, or in some cases, no research at all. We've, <laughs> we've talked about that. And, and you said, it's just kind of like seat of the pants mm -hmm. and, 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 uh, yeah, no research. And then, then we skip ahead and they said, in some cases, turf grasses have been placed in a high P and K requirement category, while pasture grasses were in a low category. This decision mm -hmm. was based on economics, not agronomics. The cost of fertilization was not considered of primary importance for turf. And that is just classic. Right in the textbook, they state that the the requirements i mean when they're saying that that they're placed in a high requirement category it means that when they set the guidelines when these states right. were setting the guidelines they arbitrarily set it high because they thought turf grass uh there's plenty of money to manage turf grass so they don't need to worry about economics in in terms right. of how much fertilizer that, they apply yeah and again a lot the, the history of how we got there is sort of intriguing because again what, what Bob and Don and Paul are saying is based on these calibrations from the 50s and the 60s, right? Well, why did we start to pay attention to even having soil test labs and making fertilizer recommendations? Because of the fact that we destroyed millions of acres of farmland in the 1930s, right? I mean, and then everybody headed west to destroy some more. And so there, there came this idea, we've, you know, it was kind of like the first great recognition of the value of soil. And I would argue that we're entering a new phase of that now, but you go back to that first one. And so often soil tests had a thing called a buildup factor, that there was a recognition that A horizons were gone and we needed to build the soil back up to be productive for field crops. And so you had a buildup indicator, which didn't really go away. And so some of what MLSN is doing 
is recognizing that you don't need that buildup factor anymore. We've, we've got that, especially in turf grass, unless it's a really, really sandy or a new construction or things like that. Yeah. And MLSN is really based on a hundred percent of plant use. So it's, it's, it turns out that, that uh, we came up with MLSN in 2012 we, we started working on it in late 2011 and then mm -hmm. larry presented it at the boyocos conference in yeah, philadelphia the boyocos i remember that, that i was there yeah with oh, all of cool. his statistics yeah <laughs> and so he presented that in the spring of 2012 and then we i i was kind of hesitant at first because it, it was such a strange way to try to come up with recommendations and it goes against <laughs> And I thought that there would be so much opposition and there has been some opposition, but what I thought, I thought, okay, we'll present these alternative guidelines. Maybe nobody will use it. And it turned out that some people started using it almost immediately. And it was mm -hmm. kind of scary because I thought, wow, that what if they don't get good results, but then people have been getting good results and then it's coming to use all over the world and, yeah. uh, and, and people and, get good yeah. results. And I never thought it would take off like that. Um, but it's, it's based on something that was also, uh, it turns out that I didn't know about it, but the Tom Erickson was doing what are now called the, um, the, uh, precision fertilization or Scandinavian precision fertilization, oh, SPF, yeah. mm -hmm. which is the guide, the excellent guidelines that you can find on the STRF. Uh, the Scandinavian right. turf he's, grass he's, environmental research. He's, yeah, and Foundation. he's published that in the. I mean, he's given talks on that for international turf meetings too. I think. Yeah. Yeah. So there's there's two papers that describe it. Two two peer reviewed papers that describe it that mm -hmm. were published in about 2012. Also, um, mm -hmm. uh, about how this works on various um, Scandinavian cool season turf grasses, and and what it is basically is saying they just forget soil testing and they just supply nutrients, all the nutrients mm -hmm. in uh, proportion to how much the grass is using them. And mm -hmm. so that, but that's not so efficient. It, it guarantees that you won't have any deficiencies, but it's not so efficient because in many cases, what if you do have 250 parts per million potassium? Or what if you have 400 parts per million phosphorus well in mm -hmm. those cases you definitely don't need to add any of those elements for right for your lifetime or for 10 years or something like that mm -hmm. and so if you follow this spf guidelines uh and just supply 100 percent of plant use you'll end up over applying some nutrients and right. so right. where MLSN comes in and says, here's a floor that we know is safe. So the MLSN right. minimum is a floor that we know is safe. The reason why we know it's safe is because we analyzed a large data set of good performing turf and we found 10% of the samples were actually lower than that. So we, we guess that this number is okay. And it turns out that basically it seems to be okay for a lot of grasses, a lot of soils and a lot of different climates, but then I'm where I was mentioning earlier about trying to account for estimated plant uptake. We kind of are integrating that SPF approach also, because I'm, when I'm making the recommendation, I'm considering how much the grass could possibly use and saying, let's make sure that we still keep this safe amount in the soil, which is the MLSN minimum. So mm -hmm. it's interesting that these were developed at about the same time and I prefer MLSN because we can figure out what's in the soil um, and and if there already is enough in the soil, which in a lot of cases there there is. So when I'm doing soil testing, uh, I often am just making a recommendation saying you don't need anything this mm -hmm. year except nitrogen. And I tend to, I mean, I, I probably looked at 40 different soil test reports in Orlando last week and there were maybe, there were about a half dozen where I'd say, Hey, mess around with a little sulfur on a, on a green and see if you get a response. Because I mean, they were coming to me with soil test sulfur of like three, four and five. And there were a few that the soil test K had gotten low, but that was it. I mean, there just wasn't anything. Superintendents tend to do a good job of, of tracking their nutrients. And, and, and if anything, 
way over apply the phosphorus. In fact, I just finished an article that I'm going to send to golf course management because the question I always get is, well, I'm seeding, I'm seeding, and I've been told that there has to be phosphorus. So should I add more even if my soil test says no? And so I went and found the research literature and the answer is very clearly no. And in fact, your, ML, your MLSN guideline fits really well. Um, it, it, there were two papers that sort of saw response somewhere around 30 to 35. And mm -hmm. the Olson paper went down to 15. So, but between 15 and 35 is the critical point that if you're seeding a Kentucky bluegrass or a bent grass, you don't need to add any more. There's plenty already there in the soil, which makes perfect soil science sense. But if you're seeding and you want to make sure you get a good seed stand and somebody tells you you need to apply more, it's a great way to sell fertilizer. Yeah. And that's, so I recommend to people get your fertilizer, figure out your fertilizer recommendations yourself or work mm -hmm. with an independent consultant or work with a university mm -hmm. lab or something like that. Um, yeah. But if you're getting your fertilizer recommendations from your fertilizer company, then you can just uh, expect that there is some amount of uh, conflict of interest there. So mm -hmm. if, if you're happy to deal with that, that's fine. A lot of people are. Um, for, well, and for there's some, a lot of, I mean, reason. I don't want to, yeah, I don't want to paint them all. There are some very, very good people out there that want to do the best thing by their client because they recognize that that's how they keep clients. And so, you know, it's, it's, but certainly the superintendent needs to come armed with a base of knowledge about what it looks like and what's needed. Yeah. But I, I agree with that. And I think that's something that you've been providing in the seminars that you teach and you, you said, uh, was it 40 soil tests that you looked at in the yeah, seminar, recent a, seminar yeah, at the had, GCSA conference? Yeah. I had them email them to me and I got all kinds of great ones. It was really wonderful to see all the different soil test reports. Yeah. It's a, it's a bit chaotic with all the different extraction methods. You know, one of the disappointing things about my PhD research, well, one of the interesting things is much of it was focused on a an extractant, uh, 100th molar strontium chloride, that I think is particularly right. suitable for turfgrass systems. Um, and some of the reasons include it's unbuffered, so the extractant adjusts to the pH of the soil. So the nutrients that are extracted, you can define what they are and say that they were done in a solution with this ionic strength and in a solution that the ionic strength approximates soil solution, it's dominated right. by a divalent cation, which is normal. It, in fact, strontium is very similar to calcium in some of its behavior, which is why radioactive strontium is, uh, is a health hazard because it can actually substitute for calcium in bones uh, and, and be a bit of a problem. But regular strontium is fine, but... Uh, radioactive strontium is 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 a health hazard anyway uh it adjusts to the ph of the soil and uh so many things so it works in calcareous soils it works in acid soils it works in all the neutral ph soils and it's it's a lovely extractant and because you're using strontium then you can actually measure calcium in it which is something that turfgrass managers are really interested in. You can measure pH in it. You could measure dissolved mm -hmm. organic carbon in it. You can measure so many things in it. So it has, and it, and also it's quite, uh, because sand root zones tend to have low nutrient holding capacity, mm -hmm. then, uh, really strong extractants that have a high ionic strength and have a low pH like malic three, they're extracting a lot of things in sand that are error. And so it, mm -hmm. I, I would argue that it increases the error and certainly the, the cation exchange capacity. Um, I had one chapter of my dissertation is about CEC and we never published mm -hmm. that, but, uh, Malik three overestimates the real CEC of sand root zones by a, a factor of about two. So strontium chloride is, is perfect for sand root zones. So there, there's a number of, uh, there's a number of advantages to it. And I thought, wouldn't it be great? if we could just make a turf grass soil test that everybody around the world would use. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I still, yeah. I'm, I'm, I, I, it's, it's just, it's, there's so much, uh, inertia with 
the extractants that are currently used. And everybody's like, well, we've got all this calibration data. Uh, well, yeah, which actually, yeah. for, and I'm saying, look, for turfgrass, we don't have it. Why don't we just start over? I know. Why don't and we use, why don't we use is, a nice extractant? <laughs> yeah. And then the other problem is what comes on the soil test reports, because I get, you know, I'm putting up report after report and I'm like, oh yeah, see all this calcium to magnesium ratio, potassium to whatever ratio, ignore it. It's all just garbage. Unless you're feeding cows and you care about that in the, you know, no, you don't need it. And so there's just, there's a lot of stuff that, that still dates back to BCSR theory that makes its way onto these soil test reports. And it just, it just adds to the confusion and the stuff that people don't need. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that you don't need, you don't even need to look at on your soil test report. But the machines at the laboratory are incredible with all the things that they can measure. And yeah. it's and so it's nice for from a let's say it's a customer service perspective or something for the labs, they can just throw they could throw all kinds of things on there. Exactly. Right. And, and that yeah, but I view it, I mean. I mean, yeah, you're right. It, the ICP spits out aluminum, copper, boron. What the hell am I supposed to do with soil test boron? I can't. I have nothing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> I I had just been completely ignoring it. Uh, that's mm -hmm. So I'll tell you what I do with it. I had been completely ignoring it and not. So even though it was on the, the report, I would never it was, it's on what I get from the lab. So the customers could look at their number, but I would never mention right. it. And I still don't mention it, but now I make a chart of it. So I just show, mm -hmm. and so what I do, and we don't have an MLSN minimum for that, but I look at the soil tests from a particular zone. So I'm looking, mm -hmm. mostly it's golf courses. So I'm looking greens, tees, fairways, rough. And I mm -hmm. look at the average from my entire database of samples, oh, the most recent ones over the past five years, and I show the the median value. So I show, mm -hmm. okay, here's the median value for boron, and here's mm -hmm. where you are. So you can just you can just say, are are you above or below the median, and yeah. you, and you can see how far above or below you are, which I think I is interesting. I would argue that I'm not even sure if the numbers can get low enough to have any calibrative value. I also wonder if they're even running it in borosilicate free glassware. If it's just coming through the ICP as a number, the lamp is turned on and giving that number. I mean, I did the only boron research that's ever been published in turf and we did 12 different bent grasses and a loamy sand soil for two years and never saw a single response. Now I'll temper that by saying we went into the greenhouse in pure sand and yeah, as boron went up, we saw some increases in rooting, but I don't know what to do with that. So maybe in a pure sand soil, it's a worth at least a cursory glance. Yeah. So that's that's right. I mean, I remember that article and there's basically nothing there with boron. Um, and where people get scared, you may have had a correspondence with Jim Prusa about this when he was working in Korea. And he was, you'll remember this because he was, he was so scared because they weren't there. They were below detection on boron for all their samples. And he was convinced that they had a boron deficiency. And I'm like, well, that's normal to be below detection. It just uh, means the piece of equipment couldn't measure it. Yeah. But uh, the one thing about Jim is he would lay out these, he's retired now living in Montana, oh. but he, uh, he would lay out these elaborate test plots um, of testing every possible fertilizer combination. And so he would, he would tell me that I'm doing it wrong by not asking all my clients to put out these elaborate test plots of every possible end source. And he would, it would, there would be like 40 plots on a practice screen um, because he's a, a, he liked to get into detail like that. So I would hope yeah. that he was testing the boron, but he was convinced that he had a deficiency and he was trying to base it on the soil test. And I would just say it's a little bit, um, yeah, with boron, so, uh, that's a tough one to do, but yeah, I mean, cursory glance. Now tell me what's the glassware. Uh, what do I need to check? Oh, Borosilicate so, so you think about this. Most laboratory glassware, right, has boron in it. It contains borosilicate glass. So true boron research has to be conducted in either plastic, which probably would be the labs nowadays, or like when we did our study, 
uh, we had to use borosilicate glassware. So all of our beakers, all of our test tubes had to be free of boron, special expensive glassware. And luckily, a guy who I followed in my career, he had done boron his entire career. So we had this huge cabinet of borosilicate free glassware. <laughs> Okay, I'm definitely going to be checking on that and making sure that the boron numbers that I bet they're that, running that it I'll all get. in plastic now that we have this conversation. I think, yeah, probably. I, I, I was, I remember there was a lot of plastic when I was at Brookside, so I'll. Uh, yeah, I'm sure. Oh, I love. I'll, Brookside. I'll confirm what that. Great lab. They do nice work. Yes, I'm going to be there again in a couple months, and uh, <laughs> I, yes. I love uh, all the details about like the uh you know they put the standard soils in and and so they they've got these standard soils every so often at a random location uh in the run and the, so that's how they can check for quality control yeah so, it's just and i love to you know all those labs they have a they have a, a regional they have a work group right by region and they all get together and because i went down and did their meeting in florida a couple of years ago to talk about our research with polymer coated fertilizers and stuff and and it's just fascinating. I mean, there's such wonks about this stuff. So people listening need to know that, you know, a lot of thought goes into this. And and I sort of sit in the room going, oh my God, they're gonna spend two days arguing about this. But on the other hand, I'm glad that there's people that are invested in that kind of stuff. Yes. But well, Beth, I think we could talk about this for three hours. But I see on the <laughs> I see on the, the top of the hour. <laughs> I see at the timer that we've come to one hour, and I don't want to take up much more well, and it's 6 a.m for you right so you've probably got people ready to start their day yeah um i i i suppose that they might be although it's still pretty quiet outside and <laughs> the sun's going to come up in about 30 minutes i i just want to look at this blog post one more time of course yeah. i would encourage everybody to read this uh and read some of these quotes and and um the quote, some of these quotes, of course, are from articles that you wrote. Um, mm -hmm. When we look at the uh, potassium and the last two quotes are from articles that you were uh, an author or a co-author on. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway. Uh, oh, good. I'm, there's your links to the cheat sheet. Oh, perfect. So people Oh, I did. Yeah, there's a link to the cheat okay. sheet in this. So um, I I'm I'm arguing that the MLSN addresses almost all of these issues of the problem that we're missing the key calibration data for turf grass. So mm -hmm. um I, Yeah, I'm afraid I, I'm gonna agree with you on that point. I, I I think you know we just need to keep honing in and, and using the data that people create through research and stuff to just strengthen the data set and get the numbers where we think they should be. Yeah, I think I think the thing about MLSN that's kind of nice is it's an active project. So yeah, um, right. Um, I've been meaning to update. I wanted to update it in 2020 because I thought that's a nice round year. And then I was planning like, let's just update it every five years. Well, I blew mm -hmm. past the deadline in 2020. And then I thought, let's do it in 2022 because that's a nice uh, 10 year anniversary. And then we'll just <laughs> get on, get on the, well, I blew past that uh, a couple months ago. So um, maybe I'll, update it. We do have a, a global soil survey summary that gives a hint at what the next numbers would be because that's on a more mm -hmm. representative data set. Um, but anyway, it is an active project and I'm pay attention to things like uh, the paper that Travis is going to publish about sulfur. And, and, and we look at the work that Doug's doing about mm -hmm. potassium and phosphorus and so on. And we look at the research that they did at Rutgers about uh, anthracnose and winter kill and so on. And mm -hmm. I just make, and and that's why I still think that at Rutgers, they're looking at static numbers. And I'm saying MLSN, if used the way that I recommend it, we're looking right. at making a fertilizer recommendation. So if you use their soil test numbers and make a recommendation the way that I would say using that I would do it using MLSN, I predict we would get the same benefit, the same and results. It's also, yeah, and, and it's also important to remember like the Rutgers stuff, if I if I remember correctly from talking to Jim about it, that that was sort of a, a an ad hoc finding. I mean, that wasn't really, the role of the research project wasn't necessarily to balance K for the POA and the anthracnose. That just sort of came out as a, as a, as a byproduct of the work. Let me, can I, if you got two more minutes, I'll bring up I one do. more. I'll bring up one more quote. So this is from 1978, and this is also in this blog post uh, from Turner and Waddington. They said, 
a very interesting statement. They said, unfortunately, turfgrass recommendations appear to be based on research done with other crops, such as forages. Mm -hmm. And then this is the key part. Results from turfgrass fertility studies not designed to relate to soil testing and the best judgment of the agronomist making the recommendations. So mm -hmm. uh, that that middle part, the results from turfgrass fertility studies not designed to relate to soil testing, that's that's what they did at And we uh, see it at, at so often because, you know, you'll have really talented, talented people who aren't necessarily in soil fertility and they'll put out a study and almost always it is for disease work, right? And I'll, I'll be like, this is really cool. Did you balance for the other nutrients? And they just look at me because if you don't work in soil fertility, you don't understand, for example, if you're going to do a potassium study and one of your products is potassium nitrate, everything else has to get nitrogen as the same rate as you put out in your KNO3 treatment. And that's why Doug's work is so profound because when he did that snow mold work, he had a sulfur control to cap to balance for the potassium sulfate that was the sulfur in the potassium sulfate that was applied. And so, you know, too much time for, over going, going over the two minutes, but that that's the importance. It's like now, now, what do you do? How do you, what do you do with that data? You, you, it's helpful. Um, but it's not just like that quote said, it might've not, it may not have developed because of it was a fertility study. Well, it, it's definitely related to potassium. I would just say, uh, I would just say that if you would, uh, apply potassium, and consider how much the plant is using over the course of the year, the MLSN is going to make a recommendation for potassium where, and that's why I'm saying, don't worry about the soil test numbers, worry about how much you apply as fertilizer that right. So the, the, the uptake or the, the amount you apply as fertilizer, the amount that's supplied to the grass that in turf grass is where I think the effect is. And, mm -hmm. it, and it's not so much what the, the, the actual soil test number is, but I think in order to get the fertilizer recommendation, it's useful to have a soil test if you interpret it using MLSN. So, mm -hmm. um, yep. Yep. so I hope this gives everybody who's watching or listening some, uh, background info about this interesting topic and understand, uh, some of the reasons why I think MLSN solves all of these problems the best that we can right now mm -hmm. and hearing from dr gertal you can have some idea about just how complex this issue is <laughs> and uh and yeah just like what, what some but, of the but, problems are where mlsn may not be as strong right. as i as i but, as i give the impression that it is but i want but to finish it up i want to you know i think we need to assure people that when they get a soil test report Notice we're not saying those extractions and those numbers are bad. Nobody's saying that. We're just saying the calibration part. What does that number mean in terms of your fertilizer application and how much or how little you have in the soil in response to, to turf grass response? That's what we're talking about. That's exactly right. So uh, I think that is a perfect point to end this because otherwise I'm just going to keep talking on and on. I know, because it's so much fun. <laughs> I know, this is this is such a fascinating topic. So yeah, maybe Beth, if you have time uh, sometime in the future, perhaps we can talk about another, uh, we can we can continue this conversation sometime. And do or we can just episode. go back to nitrogen because I can do nitrogen for hours. It's so cool. What a great nutrient. Well, that that's a very important one and that's the one that you really really need to get right because that demand that controls growth and that controls the uptake of all the other nutrients yep. so um well thank you right. Beth. have have a great weekend and i will uh, and you as well and i know I, we'll see you soon and thank you for having me yes it's been my pleasure and you can follow Beth on Twitter at, uh, is it still at AU? Yeah, it's still at Hurt. AU Turf because I can't figure out how to change it. Yeah, and if anybody <laughs> needs me, you can just find my email and get a hold of me. No problem. All right, yeah. If you do a Google search for Beth Gertal, it turns up a huge number of hits. You are a prominent scientist. So thank if you so much. If you're my brother, they're the only two Gertals in the United States. So you get to us one way. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, thanks. Beth. And thanks okay. everyone. Have a good thanks. one. Okay, thanks. Bye. bye bye. Thanks everyone for listening and watching for ATC from Yanta Yantakau, Thailand. I'm Michael Woods. Bye bye.